according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, John chapter 18. We'll return to where we were a week ago. In the trials of Jesus, we have to break it down into six separate parts because he had six separate trials. And uh, we are still in the midst of the very first one before Annas, and then he gets handed off to Caiaphas for trial number two. Another advantage we have to the new projector is the ability to to put a wide-angle picture up there, get more coverage on our screen. And we may encounter some quirks on the slideshow this morning because I'm still experimenting with the, the new dimensions. All right. Go ahead and ooh and ah here for a moment, and then we'll pray. <laughs> this is Dennis. Uh, yeah, spent about four hours here getting that mounted up in there, and running cables under here, and climbing under the pulpit, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stuff that Jacob actually installed a long time ago, and now it's been upgraded. And anyway, looking real good. All right, let's open up with a word of prayer. Let's thank the Father for His grace provision and let's uh, get to our study, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before Your throne of grace this morning. Once again, undeserving, Father, the objects of Your grace and thankful for this opportunity. We have the uh, blessing and privilege to study to show ourselves approved, to uh, search the Scriptures, see if these things are so. I thank you for a body of believers that's committed to to teaching, Father. Line upon line, precept upon precept. No one's coming here for the, the fun and games or the entertainment, Father. They're coming here to to uh, to learn, and I appreciate that. So, Father, bless our time today. Teach us what we need for our application, for the assignments you've, uh, you've designated. Father, uh, open our eyes to see the example of our Savior and, uh, and how it is that we can be imitators of Him, uh, particularly, Father, as we go through this uh, difficult episode and we see, uh, we see the unfairness, we see the, the miscarriage of justice, we see um, politics and all everything else that's ugly in this life. And it, uh, it puts our Savior on the cross. And yet, Father, that's, that's Your plan. That's, uh, that's Your glory, Father, to redeem each one of us, and we thank You for it. So, Father, bless our time today. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are going to combine episodes 26, 27, 28, and 29 all into a single outline. And so that's what we uh, introduced a week ago. Episode 26 is the first examination by Annas, followed by episode 27, the trial by Caiaphas and the council and the Sanhedrin. Um, sometimes folks divide that out into three, uh, Annas, the Caiaphas, and the council. Uh, but... The third one is really just a continuation of the second one once the sun comes up because uh, trials uh, at night were illegal and so they had two illegal hearings and then they continued on after morning in order to make it legal and uh, to pronounce him guilty and, and send him uh, off packing to, uh, to Pilate. So those are the first three. Uh, then trials four, five, and six are, are between Pilate, Herod, and back to Pilate again uh, in the morning on this Friday morning. So in the Gospel of John, we start in chapter 18 and verse 12, and it takes us down through verse 27, and then following that we will move on. You'll notice in uh, verse 24, Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so we'll move on uh, to the Synoptic Gospels to handle the remainder of, uh, of these episodes. But for, for today, though, John 18, as we deal with this, starting in verse 12. The Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And we'll see that idiom, high priest that year. Okay, It comes up several times here in the Gospels, and there's a reason for it. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. 
And when you go back to John chapter 11, you'll read about that, and we'll do so here shortly. Uh, but the, uh, the sentence has already been predetermined. They already know the outcome of this trial. They just have to conduct the trial to get there. All right? They already know what the end result is supposed to be, as far as they're concerned. So it is expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And uh, thank God for it, that one man died so that we may have eternal life, right? And that's uh, that's the, uh, the uh, unbeknownst prophecy that Caiaphas uttered on that occasion. He was actually speaking truth in his evil, in his pronouncement of the uh, you know, intention to commit murder. Uh, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. We, we know this to be John. He never writes about himself or puts his own name in there. Uh, now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So uh, the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. So there's denial number one of the three denials that Peter's going to utter before the rooster crows. Um... We see these things here. Uh, the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also uh, with them, standing and warming himself. Uh, we get to the trial portion of it, and here's what Annas is all concerned about. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And so Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with what he said. He just didn't like his tone, right? <laughs> you know, was, was there anything factually incorrect? Was there anything sinful or untruthful or, or blasphemous or wrong in any way? So Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. Show me what the lie was, what the blasphemy was, if it was an untrue statement or a wicked statement. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Why do you strike me? One of those rhetorical questions. <laughs> it doesn't need to be answered, right? You, you upset him. Okay? You, he, got, uh, he got angry. So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. All right. And now this is uh, largely stuff we t dealt with a week ago. Let me pass over that. Only the Gospel of John records this preliminary hearing before Annas. Uh, the Synoptic Gospels do not. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't make any mention of this uh, initial hearing. Um, but the Gospel of John does. Only the Gospel of John records a preliminary hearing before Annas prior to the trial by Caiaphas. And under this, we've got subpoints. When we get to main point two, we'll deal with Caiaphas. The notes we talked about last week related to Annas. Uh, we do note that uh, at this point, the Roman components disappear. Once the soldiers make their delivery, uh, this episode is strictly Jewish. There is no Roman component to this trial. There's no Roman component to the next trial. And it's at the conclusion of the next trial, just as soon as the sun comes up and they can pronounce him guilty, they're going to ship him back to the Romans. Then the Roman components will reappear. But for the nighttime uh, uh, underhanded activity, it is strictly in a Jewish context. So in verse 12, we see the cohort and the commander. Uh, those are Roman elements, and they disappear after verse 12. They're not going to come back again until, in this chapter, way down in verse 28. They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. And uh, then we return back to the Roman components, starting in verse 28. Secondly, Annas comes from the Hebrew Hanas, uh, the Hebrew Hananiah. And um, just like Anna comes from Hannah. So if you know a girl like Hannah Pickett or a girl named Hannah, it's the same name as Anna. All right. Same thing with Annas. It really should be Hannas or uh, Hananiah, as in Daniel's three friends, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Eleven different Hananiahs in the Old Testament, and those are kind of fun if you want to read through those. Josephus also wrote about this guy. We did some historical work on it. I recommended you uh, get to the Grace Notes website and go through the material there on uh, the book of Acts. 
where Annas and Caiaphas are spoken of. We read from Josephus and his Antiquity of the Jews related to this Annas, how he was not only was he high priest, but he had been deposed as high priest, and then five of his sons became high priest at different stages. Uh, his son-in-law becomes high priest. In fact, he is the present high priest as, as far as this time frame goes for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Caiaphas is married to Annas' daughter. And uh, we read the material from Grace Notes related to the mafia operations that they operated with. This was subpoint D in the outline. A synopsis of Annas and his crime syndicate is provided in Grace Notes. And so uh, if you don't want to subscribe and do all the lessons, you can just zero in on uh, Section 1, Lesson 10. All right, and pay attention to that paragraph that gets uh, written there uh, at the point of Acts 4 6 in, uh, in the Acts series. I won't repeat all this. This is what we covered a week ago, but it is worth knowing. It is worth understanding that, um, in, and we see it today, uh, you know, churchianity, I call it. Okay? It's big business. It, it gets very commercialized, it gets very uh, high stakes. All right? And, uh, you know, when there's, when there's a lot of money on the line and a lot of uh, business at stake, then, you know, certain things are done in certain ways. <laughs> and some people can get very angry, right? Like when uh, Peter, or when Paul casts out the demon in that girl and, and uh, these fortune tellers then are stuck. They, they've lost their, uh, their gravy train. Their moneymaker in Philippi now is gone. And so they're going to beat Paul and Silas and throw them into jail. And uh, likewise... Uh, you, you understand the fights that happen in churches, church splits, church fights, all kinds of denominational scandals over money, over business decisions, over uh, any number of things. Okay, Right now all the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance churches are going through a big thing over their church properties. And denominations are trying to steal buildings and shove churches, you know, church memberships out on the street and confiscate properties and different things like that. See, in any event. Uh, nothing's new under the sun. <laughs> and so now we've got big business in the temple, selling the right kind of uh, sheep for the sacrifices and trading the currency because you can't bring in a pagan coin. I mean, these travelers come all the way from, from Rome or they come all the way from uh, Babylon or where they're coming from and the coinage they've got with them, well, that's idolatry. This guy bears the image of a, of a false god. It bears the image of a, of a Caesar or something. And you can't bring that into the temple precinct. So tell you what, come over here to our convenient ATM machine, <laughs> you know, our tables, and uh, we will confiscate those, those pagan you know, testimonies, those tokens of idolatry, and we'll give you the approved temple shekel. And that's the temple shekel that you can then take inside with you and, uh, and give it right back to us. <laughs> take it inside in the temple precincts and put them in those boxes, okay? Blow your trumpet, make a great big show of how, you know, how you're serving Yahweh and all that. And, uh, and then, of course, the whole racket is making money hand over fist. The exchange rates and the money they're skimming and the, the, the uh, percentages they're taking. Huge money operation. There's no wonder the Lord, of course, starts flipping over the tables and whipping them and all the other stuff He was doing there. In any event, there we go. That's point D. Now, now we get to kind of the interesting stuff, I think. And we read it already, these verses here. Um, <laughs> it's kind of... Another story is going to happen after the resurrection where Peter and John go running to the temple, or running to the, to the, to the tomb, right? And John's the young guy, Peter's the old guy, so one's faster and one's slower. And, and they, <laughs> they get to the tomb and the stone's been rolled away. And, Peter, and John stops. At the entrance, and is kind of looking in. Peter, the old slow guy, finally catches up to him, but he doesn't stop, and he just barges right on into the tomb, right? And then once he's in there looking down at the, at the empty tomb and the face cloth and all that, then John follows him in, and the two of them are inside there together looking down, and finally the faith connects, and they, they understand the promises, and they, they proceed from there, okay? That's a story coming up. So imagine the two of them running along, John stops, Peter races in. Okay? Well, here it's the other way around. They're following Jesus and the soldiers to, to Annas, and they get to the, to the door, they get to the gate of the, of the compound, right? and that's where Peter stops. But John goes right on in. Okay? And then he has to come back out to get Peter and bring him in. <laughs> right? Am I making sense? Okay, so, and the reason why John just went right on in is because he's known. 
he's known to the high priest and to his staff, to his, uh, to his doorkeeper, this um, slave girl who kept the door. And then the doorkeeper, in verse 16, is a feminine gender, uh, matches slave girl who kept the door in verse 17. But this is point E. And as we ran out of time last week, I wanted to make sure we come back to this today to really chew on it and give it some more thought. The Apostle John was known to the high priest and had access to his house. He was known to the high priest and had access to the house. And the reason why we better pay attention to this is because uh, the, the mythology or the imagery, the idea that these guys are just illiterate fishermen, they're, they're a bunch of nobodies and who knows them and they're real obscure. Um, we might have that sense, and it's probably true <laughs> related to perhaps Peter and Andrew because we don't know so much about their family background. Uh, but we cannot claim this with respect to John and James, the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was a significant person in his generation. And likewise, Jesus uh, being the son of Joseph and Mary and the lineage that they have traced all the way back to Nathan and to Solomon. And this is, the, this is royalty, all right, as far as they're concerned. And um, we, we, we can't lose sight of that. There, there is no, uh, he has a claim to the throne of David and no one in the, in the temple can dispute that because they maintained all the birth records, <laughs> right? They maintained it. They know that he is the heir. He is entitled to the throne. And if the Romans are removed, and if the, the Davidic throne is reseated, he's the one entitled to sit there. Because Joseph's gone by now. We, we don't see Joseph any time after Jesus is 12 years old in the temple. We never see Joseph again after that. So Jesus is the one that's entitled to sit on that throne. Now, um, as far as the lineage goes, when we understand that the sons of thunder are cousins to Jesus, that helps. James and John are cousins to Jesus because their mother was the sister of Jesus' mother. John's mother, her name was Salome or Salome. She was Mary's sister. And this is why we ran out of time because it takes a while. <laughs> you've got to chart it out. You've got to look at all the gospel accounts in John 19.25 and you see a listing of women standing there at the cross. And then you go to Matthew 27 and you see a listing of women standing at the cross. And you go to Mark 15 and you see a listing of women standing at the cross. And then you realize, wait a minute, we've got to put these three lists together. <laughs> okay? We have to harmonize. And so if... In one record, we're told the mother's sister was there. And in another record, we're told that the mother of the sons of Zebedee was there. And then in another gospel record, we're told that Salome was there. We're able to harmonize and identify and, and put the point out the way we do. John's mother, Salome, was Mary's sister. And we combine all three accounts at that point. And uh, by the way, it's not, this isn't obscure either. It's, a lot of folks take the same harmonization, and it's a fairly common understanding. It helps to explain why she was brought into the picture when James and John were trying to arrange um, seating assignments, right? When she comes and she asks Jesus, you know, in the, in the kingdom, grant that my sons can sit, one on your right hand, one on your left hand. All right, well, you know, why did they bring their mother in on that? Because she was his aunt, all right? There, were, there was family connections there with respect to that. So, if, in fact, and this is true, then uh, what this means that they're Davidic. This means that they're of the line of the lineage of David, because Mary was of the lineage of David. So her sister would be of the lineage of David. Also, since Mary was kinsman with Elizabeth, that means that Salome is kinsman with Elizabeth. That means that James and John are kinsmen with Elizabeth. What does that mean? That means they have priestly connections. So this not only made John and Jesus cousins, but it also made them both kinsmen with Elizabeth. That means even though their primary tribe was Judah of the family of David, the house of David, right? But undoubtedly through marriage, that's really the simplest way that you can have family connections in two different tribes. But they have direct family descent from David. That makes them the tribe of Judah. But they do have relations of some sort with Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1 Luke chapter 1, we can pick up on this. And really the term is pretty vanilla. The term is uh, rather uh, 
vague. Oh, nice. Looks readable, bright, clean. And even that small 20-point text, you can probably read that too, can't you? So thus their lineage made them royal Davidic with priestly connections. You could read that? That's outstanding. Okay. All righty. Well, Luke chapter 1. I imagine we taught this some 4,000 hours ago, right? <laughs> what is this? Lesson number... 4.13, okay. We're going back to 2004 when we started this series and the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth here. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. So we know he's a legitimate priest. He's not a political hack. He's not some crime boss that, that got shoved in there by a, a Roman official didn't bribe his way in there, didn't pay for his way in there. He's a real priest, okay? Not some of this, this crime syndicate phony routine. He's of the division of Abijah. When, when David uh, broke down the, the different lineages of, from Aaron, there was Eleazar, there was Ithamar, and 16 of the lines came through Eleazar, and 8 of the lines came through Ithamar, and he got 24 divisions for the sons of Aaron. And so here's one of those 24 divisions, the line of division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So he's priestly, she's priestly. The daughters of Aaron. All right. And uh, glancing down then to verse 36, when uh, Gabriel is trying to encourage Mary, part of the encouragement, Mary can't figure out how a virgin gets pregnant and stays a virgin. And that's a legitimate question. I think we all might be curious about that. All right. Um, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And that's, that's asked in faith, by the way. She's not rebuked for it the way Zacharias is rebuked for it. He says, how can this be since I'm so old? And um, he gets rebuked for that. Okay. There's two different ways you can say, how can this be? You can say, how can this be like you're a liar, I don't believe you. And you can say, how can this be like, wow, what kind of a miracle is this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. And she asks, how can this be in a positive volition sense? And she's not rebuked. She's praised and she gets the explanation. The uh, angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative, now that's our term that we're just keying on in here this morning. Now that's a pretty gen generic term. It doesn't say your cousin, although some translations make it that. It doesn't say your, uh, your aunt, your great aunt, your third cousin twice removed. We don't have specificity here like we would maybe want. So how does somebody in the tribe of Judah get related to somebody in the tribe of Levi? Because the Aaronic priesthood was from the tribe of Levi. How are they related? More often than not, it's through marriage. Okay? We don't know the exact connection. Maybe it's the, um, <laughs> you know, like my relationship with Radley. See, are we are we related? Well, we're all you know we're all descendants of Noah getting off the boat, right? <laughs> I suspect Radley and I are both Japhetic. Okay, uh, uh, the fit cause were German. Uh, my Bolanders were Germanic. Maybe, yeah, okay. <laughs> but how close do we get? Well. My brother's wife's daughter's husband. Okay, yeah, we're, we're related. Okay, so, did I say that right? Okay, so, that's what we're talking about here. And let's not get so wrapped up in the specifics where we say, um, how is this connection? The point is, is that they are related. And in the ancient world, that's everything. Because your families, your clans, your connections, this is what determines uh, how well you can marry your daughters off. Okay, and what kind of daughters you can get for your sons. This determines how your commerce is going to be, um, you know, how prosperous your commerce is going to be. It's, it's everything. Your, your clan, your tribe, your connections are everything. So this, thus uh, their lineage made them both royal Davidic, also with priestly connections, legitimate priestly 
connections. Okay, so John and James here, the sons of Zebedee, they're not just some schlubs from the you know from Kentucky. All right, they're not just they're not just nobodies, uh, just you know Jewish guys from Zebulun. Okay, in, in some obscure tribe that has no kind of um, noteworthiness of any sort. Also, here's another detail that I think folks don't pay attention to. In Mark 1 and in Luke 5, Zebedee headed up a fishing fleet. They had boats, plural, that coordinated together. All right? Stretching nets between ships, between boats. Not just a single boat. We just don't, don't think of Zebedee as just some old guy sitting in a little rowboat. Okay? Oaring his way out there and throwing out a net. Also, there are servants, slaves, multiple servants. He was not simply a poor, illiterate fisherman. He actually was in partnership. James and John had a partnership with Peter. And, and they had multiple ships in, a, in what sometimes you could think of as a, as a consortium, right? In a, in a fishing consortium there in the Sea of Galilee. You know, when you're able to coordinate your efforts there and operate with a, an economy of scale... You can uh, achieve greater things than uh, than old, you know, Zeb and his two boys in a rowboat. And sadly, that's kind of the image that people have with uh, Zebedee and James and John. And I'm starting to wonder if they're called sons of thunder, and usually it's because, you know, they were temperamental or whatever. Well, what if Zebedee was the thunder? <laughs> you know, what if they got that from their dad? What was his what was his character like? Like, what was Joseph's character like? I'm convinced Joseph's the most spiritually mature man in the, the New Testament records in, uh, in a lot of ways. All right, Mark 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, um, going a little bit further, he, this is after he called uh, Simon and Andrew. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, I will make you fi- become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, now notice, with the hired servants, plural. How many is that? Okay. Well, obviously they wanted to have less than 50, because with more than 50, then they get subject to Obamacare, and they have to have all kinds of other tax considerations. (laughs) <laughs> but seriously though if you've got a big business where not only are your sons involved uh, but you're in partnership with Peter and Andrew you've got multiple boats and you've got hired servants this is not a small time operation not in any respect and another clue here in Luke 5 verses 10 and 11 Um, this is where uh, they needed to switch the other side with their nets and they'd worked all night and gotten nothing and he said, we'll try the other side and they, they uh, haul in so many fish it almost capsizes the, uh, the boat. Notice now, verse 7 says, they signaled to their partners in the other boat. Partners. Okay? For them to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats so they both began to sink. That's when Peter, of course, has his remorse. Peter has a lot of that. And um, and then boats, plural, in verse 11. So we've got partners. Uh, verse 10. Um, James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, and then they brought their boats. So we've got a partnership, a multiple ship fleet in a fishing consortium. This is, uh, you know... <laughs> interesting and people don't pay attention to it okay and you start to, to realize that they had means you know they have a house in Capernaum they've got a house in Jerusalem who maintains multiple houses okay not the poor people the, the well to do okay the folks who can and you're going to have slaves in both places to maintain it while you're not there different aspects As he's, John's got a house in Jerusalem he brings Mary into that house after the cross all right. And he's known to the high priest. He's known to the high priest. You know, ask yourself, who's, 
Who are you known to? Who am I known to? Is anybody famous that knows you? Okay. In, in power and influence? You know, if you walked up to the White House, would they know who you are? Would you have an entrance in? Okay. Okay, forget that. The, the governor's mansion. The mayor's office. The, do you know the captain of your neighborhood watch? <laughs> okay. Who do you know? Who knows you? And then what salt and light impact do you have anyway? What should you have? Again, Peter is not known, but John is. We don't know the lineage for Peter and Andrew. They are brothers, but we don't know. Uh, he's Simon, son of John, but we don't know. Simeon, by the way, may indicate if it's, maybe if it's a tribal name. Maybe he's not even from the tribe of Judah. Maybe he's from the tribe of Simeon when it comes right down to it. We don't know about Peter and, and Andrew. Andrew's a Greek name. All right. But known to the high priest. And, and the more I think about this, the more I realize, you know what, it would be unusual for him not to be known by the high priest because of the nature of Annas and Caiaphas and their criminal operations. They know everybody. Everybody that's worth knowing. They know who their friends are. They know who their enemies are. They know who's a threat to them. They know who's not a threat to them. They know who they've got a bribe. They know who they... Um, you know who owes them favors. They know who you know who they owe favors to. That's the way the that's the way the mafia works. All right, and uh, so it would be unusual. It'd be like somebody today not knowing the royal family, okay, in England, not knowing the the order of succession, not knowing you know if if the queen dies and or if Charles dies before the queen. Where, you know who becomes the who becomes the heir then? Who's who's second in line? Who's third in line? Who's fourth in line? Okay, and we don't pay much attention to that in this country, but they sure do over there. All right, and this baby man, we're going to get probably daily updates on this pregnant princess now, right? And she might have twins. And for the first time ever, if it's a girl, she will be heir. Okay, isn't that wild? Because, um, yeah, they, they changed that a while back. The point is, James and John and Jesus, they are a line of David, which means that Annas knows exactly who they are. He's got their full family records. He's got everything. All right. Point F. Annas' primary interrogation centered on Jesus' disciples and doctrine. Annas' primary interrogation centered on Jesus' disciples and doctrine. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. It's kind of interesting. That if you study it, if you read Josephus, or you read some of the historical accounts, read uh, uh, Edersheim, you know, what, what did it take to become a rabbi? Well, depends on who you ask. <laughs> uh, to the Pharisees and Sadducees, it took an extensive education. It took an extensive uh, approval among your peers. It took an excess. Ex but fundamentally, though, all it really took was disciples. <laughs> if people followed you around, you were a rabbi. If you had students, if there were people that, that sat and listened to you, well, then you were a rabbi. You had students. You're a teacher. And uh, they may not like it, your, your peers, your competitors, your fellow rabbis may not like it. Uh, but you had disciples. You had students. Okay? And uh, they may want to, uh, they may mock it, they may scorn it, they may try to influence your disciples to say, well, who are you? What, you know, do, do they know that you don't have the right degrees? Do they know that, uh, you know, you're not approved? <laughs> kind of a thing. But they're not going to like his disciples either. You get to Acts chapter 5 and they're criticizing the disciples too when it comes right down to it. So this is what his focus is. His disciples and about his teaching. And uh, which I find interesting. Um, what's the purpose in asking these questions? And what's the answer he's trying to get? You start to wonder, you know, if they're looking for evidence, then what kind of evidence might they find by inquiring into the disciples and into the, into the teaching? Okay, um, What advantage, what edge are they trying to get here? 
in different things because it's all it's all going to be political. <laughs> don't don't start to think of this as not having political significance. All right, but his answer is is not giving Annas what he wants. Um, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Okay, nothing in secret. This isn't any kind of conspiracy. I'm not gathering followers in a military sense. We're not creating an insurrection. We're not, and there had been some of that. Some of the false Christ had, had gathered some soldiers and tried to do some terrorist attacks and tried to murder some Romans and, and uh, different aspects there. Uh, but Jesus is doing none of that. Okay? And uh, his disciples, um, you know, uh, now some of them were secret. And maybe that's part of what they were trying to, to get. You know, Nicodemus was a secret disciple. Joseph Arimathea, secret disciple. They were connected as Pharisees and didn't want that connection exposed, <laughs> right? Is that part of what um, Annas is, is driving at here? Is he trying to, to unearth some moles in his organization, maybe? Um, hard to say. Okay. Now, now, John, I mentioned this last week, John is known. Not only is he known, but he's known as a disciple. There's no hiding it for John. When the slave girl asked Peter, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? She's admitting that she, she is assigning John as a disciple of Jesus. That also is, is a significant term. So John is known as his cousin and his, as his disciple. There's no hiding it. John's very public about that. But Peter was not known. He was not on the list until this event. Okay? He tries to deny it. We're going to... Uh, I hope that we chew on these things. You know, Hebrews talks about showing sympathy to the prisoners, identifying with them, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with them. Well, what if your identification with the prisoners puts you at risk? You know, they had to do that. If you identified with a prisoner, if they were in prison for being a Christian and you identified with them, they're going to start looking at you next. <laughs> right? What are you doing here? You know, if you think about it, in many cases that... The jails weren't the Cadillac resorts like we have today. They weren't fed with all the finest and everything. <laughs> Even to the modern times, you're in jail in Turkey, you're not, they don't feed you, your family brings you your food, or you don't eat. Or you get tough and you take somebody's food in there, <laughs> right? In a Darwinian survival fashion, whatever you want to do. Okay, So if you're in jail for being a Christian... And someone's bringing you food, you realize that's a, that's, a, that's a statement of faith. You're choosing to identify with the people of God. And John passes this test here. Peter fails in this episode, which we'll see coming up. All right, so uh, learning about these disciples, learning about this doctrine. It's interesting because this interrogation is not open to the world. <laughs> in Jesus' answer, what he's doing is he's condemning. What's going on? He's condemning the very proceeding where the question was just asked. This interrogation is not open to the world, and Jesus' defense spotlights Annas' criminal court. The very answer that he gives, and it's, it's so brilliant the way that he does. He doesn't have to tell Annas that, you know, this proceeding is illegal. We're meeting at night. We're not in open court. I'm not in public view. All he has to he doesn't have to tell Annas any of that. All he has to do is say, well, as far as my ministry goes, everything I've done has been out in the open. Everything I've spoken is public record. You have no shortage of witnesses if you really want to learn with the content of my doctrine. <laughs> and I like that. I like that a lot. I, I love it in, in this, of what we do here. I like the fact every MP3 file sits there on the website. So if, if the government wants to investigate and find out what we're teaching, I'll send you a link, <laughs> okay? I'll email it to you. Listen to anything you want to listen to. Spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues, in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. This is where you know you've got an effective communicator because not only is it what he's taught, but it's also what they've learned. <laughs> All right? And it becomes theirs. It becomes theirs. 
One of the officers was displeased with Jesus' reply, but could not testify to anything wrong that it contained. And this is where you're dealing with reactions that are not rational. They're irrational. They're emotional. They're spiritual. You know, you, you, can, you can talk spiritual things with people and they're going to hate it. They're not going to debate or dispute anything factually. They're just not going to like it. <laughs> because. Just because. But could not testify to anything wrong that it contained. Can we expect we've we got days like that coming up? Can we expect that uh, the cosmos is going to put a stop to things, not because there's wrong, but because they just don't like it? Okay. At what point will we be considered child abusers as homeschooling parents who don't teach the politically assigned uh, message of, you name it? Okay. We don't teach the... Uh, we don't teach evolution the way government tells us to. Or we don't teach homosexuality the way the government tells us to. Or we don't teach, you know, you name it. There's a dozen particular items there that uh, if they could halt all homeschooling, you know they would. They would. They'd do it tomorrow if they could get away with it. Not a doubt in my mind. Is there anything wrong with it? They don't like it. <laughs> okay. So don't, don't confuse reality with what they like. Because they make their own reality. And so we see it. All right. Well, this is all that Annas is going to get. Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. He's not going to get the answers he's looking for. Whatever his fishing expedition was, whatever answers he was hoping to get, whatever evidence or ammunition he was hoping to use, he got nothing. He got nothing. Because when it gets to Caiaphas, Caiaphas has to start over. Caiaphas has nothing to work with. Caiaphas then has to manufacture his own evidence. He has to uh, start bringing in uh, various liars and, and they can't keep their lies straight. And so then they realize that even their farce is not playing out correctly. You've got to at least stay on script or, or uh, it, it's not going to work. Okay. And in some respects, it's, it's almost a comedy not that it's hilarious, but it is, by definition, a comedy in the sense that you have the, the nonsense of it all coming together. So we see that under point two. Caiaphas was high priest that year. It's like the book of the month, the flavor of the week. Uh, it's like, it's an idiom that says, uh, these guys are going through high priests like my daughter goes through shoes. Okay? It's just like, Changing again, changing again, changing again. Come on, you know my my son can wear the same pair of shoes for, you know, eleven years. My daughter changes eleven times a day, and I love them both. <laughs> All right, but they were going through high priests in and out, in and out, and in and out, because it was no longer what was mandated under the law. It was no longer the system, the legitimate system. Okay. It had become a political office. And sadly, it had become a political office during their so-called golden age when they threw off the uh, bondage to Antiochus Epiphanes and when they claimed an independent throne under the Maccabees. And they claimed a priestly throne under the Maccabees. Judas Maccabeus was not of the tribe of Judah. He was a priest. And the whole Hasmonean dynasty with, with, with uh, Judas, with the, the brothers, with the sons and the grandsons, the whole thing was a perversion. They had no right to sit on a throne. <laughs> and, uh, and it's interesting. Read that history sometime. Okay, It's, it's in Josephus. It's in 1 Maccabees. It's, 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 you know, it's a swashbuckler. You'll go read about some... Uh, sword fights and battles and war and a lot of heroism and it's, it's a good story and it's a patriotic story um, you know Antiochus butchered a, a pig and offered a sacrifice of a pig in the holy place I mean, that's, that's terrible so uh, yeah and, and the Jewish people said we, you know, 
were being poisoned by these Hellenistic influences and the idolatry of the of the Greeks, and and they they fought for their independence, and it, it kind of helped that the Seleucids had problems elsewhere anyway, right? They were losing battles to the Parthians, and they were losing battles to the Romans, and they were losing all kinds of territory everywhere else, and really they won their independence because the, the the Greeks didn't have time to fight them there. When it comes right down to it, but then they set the priest on the throne and they had a king priest a non-Davidic king priest and it was wrong the, the scepter belongs to Judah the throne belongs to David the, Yahweh's promise was that the son of David would reign on that throne forever the promise in Daniel was that uh, that a fourth beast was about to come to replace the third beast and that Messiah was going to destroy the fourth beast and establish the kingdom and what do they decide to do well let's just overthrow the third beast and not even wait for that fourth beast in any event, the, the whole Hasmonean age, the Maccabean age, is uh, is interesting. I think it's sad, uh, but they view it as their golden age. They, to, to Jewish people today, go back to to the whole process there, right? Hanukkah, the whole observance and celebration of their freedom and their independence, and what a wonderful time that was when we had our own little kingdom of Jerusalem under the, the Hasmoneans. Anyway, from that point on, the high priesthood was politicized, the whole office of high priest, and all of that. And then when the Romans came in, of course, they lost their throne. They put Herod on the throne. <laughs> so now all of a sudden, now the high priesthood not only stays political, but now it gets criminal and, uh, and different things there. All right. There, uh, as I mentioned, there's a document here, the chronology of the high priest that's useful in this context. We'll take a look at that. Before we do, though, let's go back to John chapter 11. And let's read this. This expression comes up repeatedly. John 11.49, John 11.51. John 11, of course, is the uh, resurrection of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life okay and Lazarus is restored to physical life and that is just the final straw they can't they can't tolerate any more of these miracles and so um, the Pharisees get a report of what Jesus had done and so therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council it takes a lot to get the chief priests and the Pharisees to coordinate together they hated each other Okay, the priests were Sadducees the Pharisees were the Pharisees were the ones that took a stand originally you know why there are Pharisees because these were the Bible students that stood up and said the, the rulership belongs in Judah, the, priest, the priesthood belongs in Levi. And they took a stand for the truth of the Word of God. The original Pharisees were, were faithful men to the truth. And some of them were great heroes in that war for independence and they paid a, they paid a terrible price as well. Don't confuse the early Pharisees with the, the perversions we see by the time of Christ. In any event, they, they, they were opposing parties and they hated each other. The only thing pretty much that could unite them was their mutual hatred for Rome and now their mutual hatred for Jesus. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this uh, man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. <laughs> okay? And they're saying that like it's a problem. And, even worse... The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What's worse, the destruction of the nation or our loss of privilege? They will take away our place. See, right now they tolerate the Sanhedrin running local affairs, running religious affairs, running Jewish affairs. So long as they don't rebel from the Romans, the Sanhedrin has authority. Over Jewish matters. Are we hearing something? Oh, okay. Should we pray that it doesn't explode? In any event, um, if I just keep talking, you pretend you don't hear that whining noise. High priest that year. So the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I'm reading in John chapter 11 and verse 49. Okay. I'm sorry, I thought I had said that. Reading from John chapter 11 
It's on the screen. Verses 49 and 51. So one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient. And here's where he prophesies and doesn't even know it. Okay? This is the word of an unbeliever. But he is in the office of high priest. And as perverted as it is, Jesus Christ still honors, or God the Father still honors, the office of the high priest. And actually issues a prophecy through the office of high priest. Occupied by the unbeliever the way that it is. Alright? Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Is it not better that one man die so that the whole nation doesn't perish? Okay? And think about it. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The same word, perish. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. One man dies so that we don't perish. Okay? He didn't say this on his own initiative, (laughs) but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Not only that nation only, but all humanity. He might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. All redeemed humanity will be brought into one body, the mystical body of Christ, the church age. And remarkably enough, this comes unbeknownst to the high priest, the unbeliever that's uttering it. Anyway, I find that interesting. Now, this idiom in verse 49 and verse 51, he was high priest that year. He was high priest that year. He was high priest that year. We have it again in John 18, 13, our passage today. He was high priest that year. Okay? It's, um, it's a dismissive expression. It's a mocking tone. Let's see if this document opens up. The chronology of the high priest. It changed color, didn't it? In any event, there's a uh, document on grace notes. If it won't load, I'll load it myself. Here we go. Chronology of the high priests. And we can skip over the early stuff, the biblical stuff, from Aaron to Solomon, from Solomon to the Babylonian captivity. This is kind of interesting. From the time of Aaron until Solomon was 612 years. During this time, there were 13 high priests. On average, it's 47 years each. Okay? Because they don't become high priests until when? Their dad dies. Right, right. And so you don't have the case where you've got a high priest and then you've got a former high priest calling the shots. <laughs> okay? A retired high priest, a high priest emeritus, okay? or any of that. He's, he's with the Lord when you get the job. Okay, assuming that he was saved. Uh, remember, did you have to be saved to be high priest? No, you just had to be the firstborn son of the last high priest. From Solomon to Babylonian captivity, 466 years and six months. 18 high priests, average term 26 years, so it's getting shorter. Uh, Josedek, high priest when the captivity began. His son Jesus was high priest when the people were allowed to go back into the land. From the captivity until Antiochus Eupator, 415 years. The, uh, with 15 high priests, that also duplicates Jesus there, son of Josedek. Antiochus killed Onias, the last of this series. Now this is what's important. This is where it gets off, the, uh, ju- the, the train jumps the tracks here. Okay? Antiochus killed Onias, the last of this series, and appointed Jochemus. Probably saying that wrong. Jochemus was descended from Aaron, but he was not the son of Onias. Okay? So what have we done? We've just lost the father to son, father to son, father to son, father to son line. Now he's ironic. Okay? So shouldn't that count for something? Isn't that close enough? I mean, come on. Relax. That's, that's good enough. Okay? Here's the thing. We in our humanity are content with what's good enough. Well, that's good enough. That's close enough. Come on. When God is precise, when God is precise, then good enough isn't good enough. Okay? God's standard is perfection. God's standard is obedience. So Jochemus served three years till his death. No one succeeded him, and there was no high priest for seven years. 
Then the Hasmoneans, or the Maccabees, they defeated the Greeks. Then they appoint Jonathan to be high priest. Okay, we're going to have a high priest again. Jonathan was killed. And why, why did they pick Jonathan? Because he was their son. Yeah, yeah he was the son of, of Judas, right, of Matthias. Matthias was the dad, Judas, Jonathan. There were five sons. Anyway. So, uh, yeah. And because and it would have been his brother, but his brother died in the battle too, so he's next in line. Uh, Jonathan was killed by Trypho, succeeded by his brother Simon. Simon was killed by his own son-in-law and was succeeded by his son Hyrcanus. Hyrcanus was high priest for 30 years, died a natural death, one of the rare ones, leaving the succession to Judas Aristobulus. Aristobulus declared himself king of the Jews and for a short time had both religious and political power. He died and his brother Alexander was his heir. I start to notice, when we get to some of these names, Hyrcanus, Aristobulus, what kind of names are these? Greek and Roman names, that's right, pagan names. And so his brother Alexander was heir. Alexander was high priest and king for 27 years, and just before he died, he gave his wife, um, Alexandra, the authority to appoint the next high priest. Okay, well, that's biblical. <laughs> All right. Alexandra gave the high priesthood to Hyrcanus, but she kept the throne for herself. Okay. And so she ruled for nine years, and then she died. After her death, Hyrcanus' brother, a different Aristobulus, they have a civil war here, fought against him and took over both kingship and high priesthood. And here's the problem now. Now there's going to be a dispute. Because mom said that one brother could have it. <laughs> Okay, but now mom's dead, and now another brother says, I'm going to have it. Mom didn't trust you with a throne. Mom gave you the high priest, but mom kept the throne. I should have the throne. So now we've got this fight between Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Okay, and this is, this is where the fight comes in, and this is where the Romans step in and said, we're going to solve that fight. So uh, after a little more than three years, the Roman legions under Pompey took Jerusalem by force. They put Aristobulus and his children in bondage, sent them to Rome. Pompey restored the high priesthood to Hyrcanus, appointed him governor. However, he was not allowed to call himself king. So Hyrcanus ruled, in addition to the first nine years, another 24 years in his second time around. Then uh, the Parthians came. And the Parthians were the threat to Rome consistently throughout the Republic, throughout the Empire. The Parthians were the threat to the east. The Parthians came across the Euphrates River. They fought with the Romans and with Hyrcanus, took him alive, made Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, the king. When Antigonus had ruled three years and three months, Herod the Great defeated the Parthians and Antigonus. And so the Romans said, okay, we're fine with that. You can be king. The Romans made Herod king, and he cut off the Hasmonean family from the high priesthood, except, what does he do? He marries the daughter of the last high priest. And so he's an Edomite. He marries a Jewish wife, the daughter of the last high priest and king, and that gives him some legitimacy. That gives him some claim to the Hasmonean dynasty. And so um, the Romans made Herod king, and he cut off the Hasmonean family from the high priesthood, preferring to appoint those who were from common families with one exception. So... um, You'll start noticing, and I'm out of time. Uh, we, we start going through a process now where they're constantly being appointed and fired, appointed and fired, appointed and killed. Um, different aspects there. Um, there were 28 high priests in all during the 107 years from Herod until 70 AD when Titus burned the temple. So the average is about three and a half years per man. I mean, they just start coming and going. From, uh, and then they're listed there. Um... Let's see if some of those jumped out at me as well. But there you have, number 13 is Josephus Caiaphas, the the one that we see today, the one we'll come back to next week. Uh, He's called Caiaphas exclusively in the the Gospels. He's called Josephus Caiaphas in in Josephus, in the historical records. Uh, But he's the son-in-law of Annas. Annas himself is number 8, the son of Seth. And then his son Eleazar is number 11. 
His son-in-law is number 13. His other son, Jonathan, is number 14. His other son, Theophilus, is number 15. Um, 17, Matthias there, son of Annas. And so forth. So, And then there's Jesus, the son of Gamaliel there, number 26. And that's the end of the document. So... In any event, I'm out of time. Uh, but this is when we get back to Caiaphas next week. We will be in um, Matthew 26, and we'll see the assembled uh, Sanhedrin. And we'll see that at this point, they're no longer asking him questions about his disciples or his ministry or anything. All they're doing now at this point is bringing in uh, liars to try to convict him of some blasphemy. And that's the, uh, that's the course of action that Caiaphas takes for trial number two and trial number three that, uh, that take place here uh, before the sun comes up and after the sun comes up uh, on this particular morning. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the privilege we have to continue to assemble together. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.